when you see a young couple moving in with young kids and a couple dogs and they look completely out of place compared to the other people in the neighborhood and there's a bar that was formerly run down and now it's got some hipsters coming to hang out there you know that there's something going on in that particular area. It's that time of year again, tax season. How are you doing on tax season? How's that treating you so far? Well, if you have a lot of receipts and you're organizing things like your income and expenses and creating reports, and you're also trying to keep up to date with the new tax reform this year, there's a lot of deductions that we can take to maximize return. And there's a lot of strategies that we need to make sure we're aware of Are you optimizing for the new tax laws? Well, our sponsor, Stessa, teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you the ultimate rental property tax guide. And I've read it. This is the ultimate rental property tax guide. I'm talking about they've got everything covered from opportunity zones to entity selection to establishing a home office, travel expenses, what type of travel expenses are deductible, real estate strategies, tax strategies, capital improvements versus repairs. I mean, this is the ultimate rental property tax guide and you can get it for free by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. You have to sign up for an account, but the account is free. So when you sign up for a free Stessa account, you will get this guide. This is worth its weight in gold for sure. Go to stessa.com, S-T-E-S-S-A.com forward slash best taxes. And when you work with Stessa, Stessa is a tool that helps every rental property owner track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate investment. So it's going to save a lot of time during tax season, but then also through the rest of the season as we go and grow our rental portfolio and optimize that. So go to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. Get that ultimate rental property tax guide. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff. And first off, I hope we're having a best ever weekend because today is Saturday. We've got a situation for you. And here's the situation. You want to identify an up and coming market before everyone else. Well, how do you do that? Today's best ever guest, Brent Maxwell, will be discussing that with us. Brent, how you doing? Doing great, Joe. Good to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back. And as a refresher, best ever listeners, Brent is a real estate investor whose personal and professional stories align with the recovery of Detroit. He's based in Detroit, Michigan. He's got a passion for the, quote, limping, end quote, sections of Detroit and helps people buy into a piece of the city's recovery. Interviewed him a little while ago, episode 1,357, and he has bought, sold, and brokered a 1,000 doors of Detroit real estate with a volume of over $30 million. So with that being said, Brent, Will you give the listeners just a refresher of your background, and then we'll go right into how to identify an up-and-coming area? Sure, sure. I've been uh, investing in Detroit real estate since 2005. Bought my first duplex then and have proceeded to buy and sell a number of others for myself and for partners and for clients. And been a part of the economic crash that was in Detroit and hit Detroit harder than most cities, but also been a part of its recovery and enjoying the ride. So the focus of our conversation today is how to identify an up-and-coming market before everyone else. So how do we do that? That's a great question. And for the people that have a bit of risk tolerance, I think it's the question to be asking. 
when you look at, for example, Detroit as a market as a whole, there was a trough from 2009 when we when we bottomed out all the way for the next few years, and then things started to peak up. In, in many areas of the city and in most of the suburbs, property values are at, near, or even above their pre-crash peak values, but there's still many places where the values are still flat. So if you're buying as a value investor and you're looking for an increase in appreciation, obviously you want to buy in an area where that curve is at least hit the emerging part of the growth market, and ideally you're getting in the low, obviously. So how do we do that? I think the answer in Detroit is to look for areas where you're starting to see signs of the percolation of transition. Mm -hmm. And what signifies transition? Transition is a change of the demographics of an area. You're looking at areas that have been stable or declining for a long period of time and are experiencing a different character of a person moving into them whether it be middle-income, middle-class people, or young, hip people, whatever that is, those are areas in transition. Of course, there's downward transitions as well, but we're looking for the upward transition. So basically, we're looking for areas that, for lack of a better word, are approaching what many people would consider gentrifying, although really at the beginning stages of any neighborhood in transition, you don't have any gentrification. And quite frankly, in the neighborhoods of Detroit, there isn't any gentrification. So I realize it's a bad word for a lot of people. I don't have a problem saying it because it doesn't really exist even in the central business district of downtown, where you're seeing $25 a foot for rental space, it's priced appropriately compared to similar markets nationwide. So you can't really look at that as being something that's displacing people. How do you find that data? Where do you look? And if you're on the ground, same question. Well, there's two questions there, really. How do you find the data and what does it look like from the ground? The data is readily available to anyone with basic access to comps in an area. You can see days on market, prices of properties that have been sold, photos of those properties and such by looking at the MLS or any associated feed that comes from that. So that's one step. The other step, though, is actually being in the neighborhoods and in the areas that we're talking about and kind of getting a feel for it by being present all the time. And when you see a young couple moving in with young kids and a couple dogs and they look completely out of place compared to the other people in the neighborhood and there's a bar that was formerly run down and now it's got some hipsters coming to hang out there, you know that there's something going on in that particular area. So these are kind of harbingers of progress and, and leading indicators of an area that is on the edge of hip or will maybe someday be hip. Mm-hmm. From the data question and response, you said you want to look at comps in the area and some specific data points like days on market and prices of properties that have been sold. What specifically are you looking for with days on market? A decrease in days on market. I like to divide the market into quarters, and I look at the top quarter for my investing purposes. So a decrease in days in market on the top quarter of properties means that the people who are buying the more expensive properties in an area are acting faster, and you want to see in conjunction with the decrease in the days on market, you want to see a drive up in prices. So when you say you divide the market into quarters, you're dividing it into quarters based on purchase price? Sale price, yeah. Sales price, sales price. Got it, got it. Okay, so you look at all of the sale prices for a particular area, and then you divide it into quarters, and then if you see a decrease days on market for the most expensive quarter of properties that have been sold then that's a good indicator. Yeah, another good indicator is looking at the bottom quartile 
and looking at the floor of the market. Now, Detroit is unique, I would think, at least in my experience among markets, as far as the floor being in many cases non-existent and there being sometimes a large number of what I would consider negative value properties. Mm-hmm. And if I could expand on what I mean by that. Yeah, so if you have a neighborhood where a three-bedroom, 1,000-square-foot bungalow in great condition sells for $40,000, which exists in the city of Detroit, and in that same neighborhood, you've got a blown-out bungalow that's selling for $5,000, if it takes you $35,000 to get that $5,000 bungalow up to the place where the $40,000 bungalow that's just as nice is, then you've got a property that is a wash on a dollar-for-dollar basis. You're investing 40 in either property, but in one case, you're losing out on opportunity costs because you're tying up your money over a longer period of time while you're in that renovation stabilization phase. You've also got the risk associated with the time that you've got to rehab and play. So that's not a good deal. Now, some of those properties actually end up being to where if you look at them and you take them, a lot of times they're sold on a quick claim deed, which means they're sold with a suspect title or there's no guarantee on the title. So you've got to take the time to go to an attorney and have them quiet the title. There's back taxes, huge back water bills. Sometimes there are assessments from the city or blight tickets attached to this type of property. You can have a property that actually costs you more to get it stabilized and functional than the nicest properties in the neighborhood are selling for. So I would consider that a negative value property. If you can buy a cherry for $40,000 and it costs you $50,000 to get the house next door that's trashed and turned it into a cherry, the house next door doesn't have any real value. Yep, that is understood. So Detroit's got that. It's got negative value properties. It's got neighborhoods where there's no floor, where the properties go down to a dollar, $500, $1,000. There's properties available still in many neighborhoods of Detroit for that low price point. Now, they don't have any real value, so you're not hitting a home run by buying a $1,000 property. It's probably better off just spending your money on lottery tickets. But at the same time, when you look at the bottom quarter of neighborhoods and those $1,000 properties go away and all of a sudden the floor creeps up to ten dollars or $20,000, then you've got a neighborhood where you can seriously look at that and say, there's something going on here. Mm. This was formerly a highly distressed neighborhood, a war zone, what have you. Now, none of these properties are being given away uh, on a deed for a dollar. In what period of time are you looking for the historicals to see how it's trending? I go back to 05. Okay. From a chart standpoint, it's really pretty if you go back that far because you get to see the top of the peak coming in 5-6. And then the softening in seven, the crash in eight, the drops in nine, the trough 10, 11, 12, and then the emergence of the markets in that same period. So you can kind of do a, a graph over time of sales price in an area, taking and trying to get like properties. So looking, for example, with that three-bedroom, 1,000-square-foot bungalow we were talking about, and you can overlay one area versus another area and see that while they both experienced a peak and they both experienced a crash and they both experienced a trough, one of them has pulled out of the trough and now the values are shot way up and the other one is flat. Then you can throw a third neighborhood in that same thing and overlay it in there and you can see that it's flat, but now the values are starting to creep up and you've got a 25% Mm. increase in your curve. You start to see that kind of the beginning of what they call the hockey stick, right? Yep. That's but you funny. don't want to see a hockey stick with a long blade. You want to see the hockey stick with a short blade because you know you're at the beginning of that curve. Yep. You said area. How are you defining area? I use neighborhoods. I draw okay. my own custom maps. The multiple listing service, the MLS here in Detroit, breaks things down into kind of arbitrary 
they're not gerrymandered, but they kind of are just picked randomly areas. So they're not very useful. You can define areas by zip code, which is, in my opinion, too large and also sometimes not as useful. City, obviously, we're talking about the 139 square miles that is the city of Detroit. So that's <laughs> far too big. (laughs) I mean, you could throw Boston, San Francisco, and Manhattan in there and still have room for Phoenix. Dang, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's huge. You can throw a lot of big cities in there that you think, wow, "Wow, all these fit in the same area. Actually, when it comes to Phoenix, the density of Phoenix is very similar to the density of Detroit. Hmm. Just warmer weather. There's certainly warmer (laughs) weather. Yeah, I have relatives in the Phoenix area. Do you use just an Excel spreadsheet? When you say overlay, is that what you do? No. You'd be surprised with the service that's provided for brokers, the amount of information you can get. There's a lot of data and information available. And if you really learn how to use the tool, there's many charts available that you can create. You just have to learn how to play with it and plug the information in. So I don't pull them out and export them into an Excel spreadsheet. I do export a lot of information into Google Sheets, same thing. That's what I use because it's cloud-based. But I use those more for marketing data and for generating lists and that sort of thing. But the sheets I'm talking about for the overlays, I don't actually overlay them. I just print them out and look at them next to each other, and you can see the trends visually. So it looks like a line chart. On the left-hand side of the page, you've got the mountain that was the Great Peak, and then the Great Recession crash, and then the trough, and then towards the right, you've got... 15, 16, 17, 18, as far as the years go. And you can look at it and you can see the action over time. So I compare the areas that I'm looking at versus the surrounding areas and other key metric areas that I'm very familiar with in the city. And by areas, I do mean that thing, what I said about neighborhoods. You know, it's all about Detroit's very block by block and street by street. And there are definitely neighborhood boundaries, which works to our advantage in some cases, especially when it comes to, for example, comps. If you're dealing with a transitional market, and you're starting to get outside of just straight investor sales, and you're looking at selling to retail home buyers who are using mortgages, mm-hmm. comps become very important from a mortgage standpoint for appraisal purposes. And appraisers look at like properties versus like properties. So they're looking at that three-bedroom, thousand-square-foot bungalow. And you can have a neighborhood in Detroit like East English Village, which is a historic, very, very nice middle-class neighborhood that borders on one side Cornerstone Village, and on the other side, Morningside, and these two neighborhoods share some of the similar housing stocks. So you can have a three-bedroom bungalow that's $225,000 in East English Village, which the appraisers will use to comp out properties on both the neighborhood next to it, Morningside, and on the other side, Cornerstone Village. You get to ride off their comps, obviously, with the changes in the way the laws work. Not only does the seller nor the buyer have any access over the appraiser, the lender doesn't either. There's like a third-party appraisal company that handles all that stuff now. But they still pick their comps from the data. So the advantage is is you can work near a hot neighborhood as long as you have similar properties that's technically not the same neighborhood, but appraisers don't care about neighborhoods. They care about zip codes, cities, and like properties. Anything from a on-the-ground standpoint, You mentioned young couples with a dog and hipsters going into a a bar that's been open. Anything else, a type of business maybe that you've seen that indicates that the property value is increasing? Yeah, absolutely. Your big rooftop data companies like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, obviously when those come into a neighborhood, you know that the neighborhood's going to experience some, some continued resurgence. But they're looking at rooftop data and they come later in the process. On the front end though, A lot of people think that the hip people move to an area and then the prices start to go up. 
But in my experience, before the hipper people come, you have the artists and the pioneers who come who are looking at just cheap, cheap, cheap prices and the ability to live and focus on their art or their lifestyle and still have a neighborhood that works for them. So that's something that people think is the driving force. But in my opinion, what really makes the difference is, like you said about the businesses, when you've got a hip restaurant that lands in a neighborhood or a hip coffee shop, that kind of thing that brings in people to drive to as a destination to the neighborhood, that is the big number one sign. So we had in Corktown, which is just outside of downtown on the west side of Detroit, we had Slows come 10, 12 years ago. It's a barbecue, Slows barbecue. And it was very trendy, hip and popular. And it led the procession of businesses and people that moved into Corktown and thoroughly drove values through the roof there and really turned that neighborhood into a great, great neighborhood. What we're experiencing now on the east side of Detroit is something similar going on in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood and the East Village neighborhoods where you've got Norma G's new million-dollar Caribbean restaurant going in, just opened recently. You've got Roses, which is a diner that's very hip and trendy to the point where on weekends and busy times in the morning, there's lines outside the door in the middle of an area where you'd be like, why on earth is this this <laughs> diner like packed with people lined up outside the door? It's and really not a good reason. but There isn't. That's not right. I mean, I'm, I'm, sure I'm not going to say anything bad about Roses. It's okay. I've actually, at my best, I've been there three or four times right. the most, and only three or four but times I live that. right by there. It's, it's right. just not my thing. But the last time I went there was really the best time I've enjoyed it the most then. But yeah, that's what drives it. So the next thing you know is there's people moving in who are bicycling all over. And the city is just thrown in from downtown all the way to the Gross Point border on the east side along Jefferson, which is the main road that runs by the water. They've done bike lanes running all the way from the city to Alter, which is huge here for Detroit. We've got the kiosks where you can rent bicycles mm-hmm. all throughout downtown, midtown, going into West Village all surrounding the downtown central business district. But now we've got the scooters and I've seen the scooters. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the scooter yeah, rentals. Birds, birds, city bird and limes. They end up just straight up hood areas where you're like, wow, wow. How is there a scooter here? But people of all socioeconomic backgrounds use them. They're convenient and they're not that expensive. They also provide an opportunity for locals for recharging them. I understand that it provides a source of income. So you've provided some information on how you've identified the up-and-coming markets, and we got into specifics from the rent comps, days on market, how you look at the prices of the properties that have been sold, how you divide that into quarters and look at the bottom, see how the bottom creep up to a certain price point, and then also the top. And then the on the ground neighborhoods too, and certain things to look for have to drive to that neighborhood, which brings in more people, more exposure. Really appreciate this. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing and get in touch with you? Visit our website anytime, ipsrealty.com. That's investment property systems realty.com. Or they can call me or email me, 313-422-1333. It's my direct line. Can't text it, but you can call it. Brings my cell phone to my office or brent at ipsrealty.com, B-R-E-N-T. I'm pretty much always on. I don't have an off switch. (laughs) Well, Brent, thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Wonderful. Stessa is the essential tool for tracking your rental properties and it's going to save you a tremendous amount of time during tax season. 
Stessa organizes all of your rental property financials and automatically creates all the reports you need to file your tax return. And Stessa teamed up with the top real estate CPAs to offer you, best ever listeners, the ultimate rental property tax guide to help you maximize your deductions. Get that copy when you sign up for an account. The account's free. So get the copy by going to stessa.com forward slash best taxes. That's S-T-E-S-S-A dot com forward slash best taxes. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellyn.com forward slash show. That's dot com forward slash show.